This is a bonus episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. Your hosts are Stephanie Young and Todd Gans. So when we put together If the Walls Could Talk, we heard so many stories about Edgewater Hospital that there was just no way we could fit them all into the regular podcast. So we've gathered as many of them as possible for this bonus episode. Most of these stories are from the Dr. Maisel years. So this episode is heavy on history and light on drama. And just to note, there are no spoilers in this bonus episode, just lots and lots of stories about the hospital's history. Dr. Maurice Maisel proudly stood at Edgewater Hospital's grand opening ceremony in 1929. It took two years of planning and eight months of construction to bring his dream to fruition. There wasn't a hospital that far north in the city of Chicago, and he saw a need and decided he would build a hospital. Jim Ginter is Dr. Maisel's grandson. He had it in his mind he was going to do it, and he did it. Dr. Maisel was just 32 years old when he co-founded Edgewater Hospital. When it opened, people marveled that this hospital looked more like a hotel. Beyond the solid bronze doors at the entrance sat a receptionist in an ornate lobby with walls covered in marble. Dr. Maisel had it run like a high-class hotel, even though it was a hospital. And that wasn't by accident. My grandmother, Harriet, had a background in hospitality. And you would come in and there would be a bellman waiting for you at the door. And someone helped you in with your bags. Someone rode the elevator up with you and took you to your room. It's very much like a hotel. Combining Maisel's vision with Harriet's interior design skills, the opulent Edgewater Hospital borrowed several features from hotels. Having bellhops was one of them, but they were called page boys. A page boy is like a bellhop in a hotel. Alan McGarrity was a page boy. I absolutely loved that job. Alan and the other page boys answered to each patient's beck and call. Our job was to sit at the reception desk when a patient would get admitted We would carry their bags up to the room, make sure they got settled in okay, help move patients from the ER or when they were brought upstairs, move them from the gurney to their bed. They wore special uniforms that included clean white gloves. Not wearing white gloves for any of the pages was Dr. Maisel's pet peeve. He would holler out the whole length of a corridor. Get those damn gloves on. (laughs) Those that came under that kind of attack were very, very embarrassed because it was very public. But it was his hospital. Page Boys also went room to room selling newspapers. One night I'm selling my newspapers and I walk into a room with no gloves and there sat Dr. Maisel visiting with a patient. And I get this death stare, where are your gloves? And I pulled them out of my pocket and I said, have them with me, but I can't wear them because I'm handling money. And boy, did I dodge a bullet there. I'm glad I never got chewed up by him. (laughs) Along with Page Boys, the hospital had tray girls, like Allie Garcia. We would bring the food to the patients. It brought happiness when the elderly people would see us walk into the rooms. They would really light up because a lot of them didn't really get any visitors. We all had to wear nursing uniforms. But yeah, we wore the same things that a nurse would wear. Some hospital rooms had three to four patients crammed in there. But Edgewater also had large private suites tucked within the hospital. 
These spacious suites had a couch, refrigerator, and even a bar. The room was just huge. So you got the view of the lake. The hospital catered these private rooms to the wealthy who wanted to get away for a bit. You just knew there had been somebody really spectacular in there to be able to have that kind of a room. Celebrities also frequented these rooms, and many stayed under assumed names. The mystery over who was staying there made tray girls like Mary Booker curious. When the trays came, you knew it was a private room because they had these really elaborate coffee pots that they would put the coffee in, and they wanted to be the tray girl that got that tray to go into the private room just to kind of see who it was. While Mary didn't see any celebrities, she did have one interesting patient. He was one of Al Capone's boys back in the day. As far as we could get, was handing the uh, tray to a guard. Legend has it that Bing Crosby, Jimmy Stewart, and even the Rat Pack came to Edgewater Hospital. In Dr. Maisel's office, he had signed pictures of several celebrities, and he was their physician. They would fly into Chicago to get treated by him. A reason so many celebrities came to Edgewater Hospital was its proximity to the iconic Edgewater Beach Hotel. Edgewater Hospital should have been called the extension of Edgewater uh, Hotel. That's Phil Gronemeyer. Just the way it was laid out, carpeting, the nurses' stations were all seemed like to be on the corners and it was all nice woodwork and you really felt like you're in a hotel. The Edgewater Beach Hotel was down the street from the hospital and became a popular honeymoon and prom destination for locals, but also a place where Hollywood came to stay and play. It saw Marilyn Monroe, Babe Ruth, Judy Garland, Betty Davis, Presidents FDR and Eisenhower. Heck, even Gandhi once checked in there. What went on there would give TMZ a run for its money. Stories of love, lust, drama, and debauchery were synonymous with the hotel. In fact, the hotel inspired the novel and 1984 film The Natural that starred Robert Redford as Roy Hobbs. Dr. Maisel used to live on the hotel campus in what's known as the Pink Building. His access to all these celebrities is why so many of them came to see him at Edgewater Hospital. The shores of Lake Michigan once reached the hotel, but that all changed when the city of Chicago extended Lakeshore Drive. After the hotel's beachfront property was filled in, its days were numbered. The hotel filed for bankruptcy and closed in the late 60s, and then a wrecking ball took down everything except for the pink building. We put a picture of the pink building on the episode page of our website, if the walls could talk podcast.com. Edgewater was the hospital that never stood still. Although it sat in a residential neighborhood, it was constantly expanding upward and then outward. At its peak, it nearly encompassed an entire city block. In the 1960s, the hospital added an entire intensive care building. This included a heliport and a hyperbaric chamber. We had this huge hyperbaric chamber. That's Denise King. Supposedly, it was the largest around. And every day, we had people going in there for hyperbaric treatment. Chambers were, and for the most part, still are rare. But Edgewater had one. The huge chamber was manufactured by a Chicago Heights company that's still in business. During construction, crews had to raise the 14-ton chamber up three flights and then swing it through a hole in the building. At 28 feet long, its massive size allowed multiple patients and hospital staff inside at the same time. 
The chamber was really just a big industrial boiler that used high amounts of oxygen to treat stroke, heart attack, and burn victims. As Roger Eamon explains, it also treated those with the bends. We get all these people with the divers bends and stuff, they come in the heliport, and then you, they put them in the hyperbaric chamber. Now what they can do is they can take you down like where you were at when you were diving. So if you're 3,000 feet under the thing, they can take you down to there. Then they lower you back up to the surface, so to speak, and the bubbles on your blue bloodstream go away. Larry Marks spent 100 hours in Edgewater's hyperbaric chamber. Not only are your ears popping, but it gets hot. There's no air conditioning to offset that. Then it gets freezing cold. Aside from people, Donna Jarvis remembers others who were treated in the chamber. Our unit was right under the chamber. So we always heard when they started the chamber up. And all of a sudden we heard a dog barking. I went, what is that? Well, there was a fire victim in the chamber and he had his dog in the fire. And they put the dog in the chamber with him. <laughs> Here's this little dog in the chamber with his master. There were dogs and even some bulls that made their way into the chamber. We had a contract with the Chicago Bulls. Some players from those Chicago Bulls teams in the 90s also got treatment there. He was a big red-headed guy. He was the center on the Bulls for a couple of years. Hyperbaric matters. I mean, Michael Jackson took it too. I mean, it, it really is, it has a lot of applications that are very, very positive in the healthcare arena. Edgewater Hospital was way ahead of its time. Roger Manulet's father worked at Edgewater. I think Dr. Mazel was a pioneer in developing that live, work, play environment that now you see is big with like tech companies like the Google and Apple campuses. The idea being you create a place that um, has some recreation in it that feels like home, that's family friendly, that has good food. I mean, my dad couldn't stop talking about, you know, the quality of food in the cafeteria. They offered all the employees free meals. I mean, steak and stuff, right? I'm not talking about some crummy stuff. You could have free breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Doing that creates happy employees that are willing to work hard and stay longer hours. I think that was a way that Dr. Mazel was able to create a place that allowed him to draw the best out of people. A place where people don't want to clock out and get as far away from at the end of the day because of that feeling of it not being just a, a place of work. Dr. Maisel wasn't a very tall man, but his demeanor managed to put the fear of God into those around him. He was tough, very, very tough. Georgette Ginter is his granddaughter. I mean, he made it clear how he wanted you to do your job. And people basically respected him. There was a certain amount of fear. He was an entourage who'd make runs. So you'd go into a room, you hit the nurse call button. If you weren't there in 30 seconds, he fired you. People saw him coming and they would either hide or continue to do their job well. He was known for his short fuse, but in the medical world, his status ranked near the top. Maisel was a world-renowned cardiac surgeon. He developed a form of open-heart surgery that was used in operating rooms all across the globe. And he even offered to treat President Nixon. But Maisel is best known for his work on a blood clot dissolving drug. 
Our guest on Insight this week is Dr. Maurice Maisel, director of the Maisel Medical Center, Edgewater Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Maisel is deeply involved in the development and testing of a new medication claimed to be very effective in the treatment of blood clots. Good day to you, Dr. Maisel. Thank you very much. Now, exactly what is urokinase and how is it made? Well, urokinase is made from a healthy male urine. It takes 350 gallons of urine and three weeks to process it. And it's a very complicated process to make enough to treat one patient. In this 1975 radio interview, Dr. Maisel compared the drug to a common household product. To make it very simple, it's just like you use Drano in your sink to clear the drain. You know, he developed your own kinase. And so when I first got there, it was kind of odd because I would go to the men's washroom and they're collecting urine. I thought, what? And I found out that he had developed this urokinase that, that blood clots in your heart and stuff and brain, it, it took it away. So he was really a forerunner in this kind of stuff. He was an interesting man. That drug once led to an argument between Dr. Maisel and Dr. Manulet. Maisel wanted Manulet to use it on a patient with emphysema. Dr. Manulet, give him urokinase. I said, excuse me? Give him urokinase. He said, he doesn't have a pulmonary emboli. I'm telling you, give him urokinase. And I said, I'm not going to give it to him. Well, you're out. And he kicked me out. He fired me. So I said, well, okay. So I went back home at 11 o'clock in the morning. My wife said, what the hell are you doing here? He said, I got fired. I will have to start looking for a new job tomorrow. So about 7 o'clock at night, someone knocks on the door. Who is there? I opened the door myself. He didn't ask permission to come in. He just went in, sat down in the sofa. He said, I want a scotch on the rock. I said, okay, talk to myself. I give him the scotch on the rock. And he looked at me and said, you never walk out of me. I said, excuse me? You fire me. Well, don't pay any attention to me. And then he kept drinking. And at the end, he said, now you have to drive me home. So I got his Cadillac and I drove him home. <laughs> and much like a Seinfeld episode, next day I was back to work. <laughs> this job posting from 1980 was seeking registered nurses at Edgewater Hospital. It read Free meals, free parking, free Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance, free pension plan, eight holidays, three weeks vacation tuition reimbursement plus furnished studio apartments available for $150 a month that included all utilities and year-round rooftop pool. That ad perfectly summed up the perks of working at Edgewater Hospital. Those furnished apartments mentioned in that ad were in the nurse's residence that Maisel built for his staff. I lived in the nurse's residence. After they opened it up to regular employees, I grabbed an apartment there. Much like a college dorm, Nurses and other staff took up residence in the studio apartments. It was basically like a studio apartment. It was very small, but I loved the humongous window facing Edgewater Street. Just look out and see all the trees, and it was such a pretty street. When the hospital industry faced a nursing shortage in the 1950s and 60s, Maisel went overseas to fill the need. They had great success recruiting nurses from Europe and Ireland back in the 60s. Maisel paid transportation costs for these nurses to come to the States 
with the agreement that they would work at Edgewater for a year. The nurse's residence was recognizable for the indoor swimming pool that sat atop it. We would go up and swim, we'd have parties up there. and Kathy Colombo remembers more than just swimming happening up there. The place was like Peyton Place, you know, there was always the big romances that everybody was gossiping about, but it was like a soap opera. <laughs> the building became famous for something else. Oh yeah, we had parties. We used to have parties because there was a big kitchen in the nurse's residence. So my supervisor liked to cook. She always did the cooking and we would have theme parties like Hawaiian luau's. So. One of the girls was a very good artist, so she drew, uh, drew a girl dressed in Hawaiian style and with her head over her shoulder. Well, we invited the doctors. These doctors who hardly spoke to anybody would come to our party and loved every minute of it. We filled my bathtub with ice and filled it with liquor and beer. Does that tell you about our parties? <laughs> it, it does a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and one time the one doctor who was very proper and so forth and so on, he came and he had a few martinis and he got in the elevator to go back to the hospital and he's riding, they found him, he's riding up and down on the elevator. <laughs> he was drunk. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Honest to God, this we partied. Parties weren't limited to the nurse's residence. If there was a holiday, if there was a going away party, Christmas, whatever, that was an occasion to party. And my coworker, she would bring in her blender, and one year she made Bahama Mamas in the payroll closet. You know, so here's all the, the payroll ledgers and all the books and all the time cards and stuff, and we would clear a shelf, and she'd set up her blender. One o'clock in the afternoon, you hear, and it's like, Okay, the drinks have started. <laughs> and that's when someone would call my mom and my grandmother, who were running the place at the time. And they'd come up and they'd stand around. There'd be my mom with a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other. And everyone would be laughing. And we'd set up long tables and everyone would bring their specialties. Brownies, cookies, ponsets, kolachkis. You know, it was, it was like an international smorgasbord. And it really felt like just spending time with family. In the business office, the end of the fiscal new year was also cause for celebration. The fiscal new year was always April 1st. And on March 31st of every year, the finance guys would be crunching all the numbers and doing their thing and closing the books. And this was before Excel spreadsheets and before the software systems that did all this. They were, they were doing manual ledgers and they would close the books. And then they would have a New Year's Eve party. There would be champagne popped. There would be snacks or d'oeuvres. I mean, it was like a New Year's Eve party, but it was sort of a celebration of closing the books and then just the, the happiness in the office. There was also the annual dinner dance. The dinner dance, that was the social event of the season. The idea was to allow the employees, anywhere from the housekeeping staff to the doctors, to have an evening of fun where you could dress up, it was, you know, formal, and what do you mean to the dinner dance? And it was like a big deal, and there were pre-parties and after-parties. They always had an orchestra, and there were lots of fun. It was just kind of cool seeing people that are normally in their scrubs in the fanciest clothes ever. 
Edgewater Hospital turned up in a handful of 90s television medical dramas, including The Human Factor, but it made its big screen debut in the 1991 movie Backdraft. Like four or five guys are walking through, then I was going to stop them. But then I look and I was like, oh my God, that's Kurt Russell. Stars like Kurt Russell, Robert De Niro, and Ron Howard filmed scenes at Edgewater Hospital. But when they weren't taping, you would find director Ron Howard hanging with the children at Edgewater's on-site daycare. When they did backdraft, Ron Howard used to come in and sit with her on the little baby chairs and play with the kids. Bobby Matz ran Edgewater's daycare. Adults were like, oh, Opie, and the kids are going, that's Richie Cunningham. It was just part of life at Edgewater. And the one thing that I was really mad at myself for is I never thought to ask for an autograph. The daycare was another perk for hospital employees. Bobby was our caregiver at daycare. Dennis Pay went to Edgewater's daycare, which he lovingly called Bobby's school. She was the heart and soul of our little community. She would put on these holiday things, like coming out of like those wheeled laundry ginormous hampers, like fully dressed up as the Easter Bunny. Actually, my brother and sister and I always talk about on Easter how terrified we used to be of her. Oh yeah, they were fun. They would dress us up in these caps and gowns, and we'd have like a big ceremony. The kids that were graduating to go to kindergarten, we took and made their graduation hats out of construction paper, and then we took pillowcases and cut for the head and the arms to come out, and we took blue crepe paper and ran it around down the front of them. They'd march into pom-pom circumstances, and they were presented with a diploma, and they always put on a program. It was just like a um, grade school or a high school graduation ceremony. All the parents would come down and mingle. Nobody was better or anything because the one thing I always did down there was everybody loved everybody and it didn't make any difference what color, creed. We were just one big bunch of friends and happy. She took really good care of those kids and she loved them. She loved every single one of them. We used to take the kids trick-or-treating to, like, Maisel's office and all of that. And I can remember the one year we went in, and he had crisp, brand-new $1 bills for the kids. And the one little kid said to him, please take the money back, mister, and go buy me candy. And I'm like, Eddie, no, no, don't say that. We'll go buy you candy. No, mister, I don't want this money. I want the candy. And I'm like, okay, no problem. Dr. Maisel's belief that fresh air and sunlight was a necessary component of the recovery process led to him creating a solarium. And it was sort of an ingenious addition that my grandfather insisted upon. The belief was that being able to sit even in a covered environment or semi-covered environment in the sun, getting fresh air, contributed to recovery and health. The solarium was a place for patients and staff like Phil Berry to take a break. They had a solarium on the top floor for patients so the patients could go up and and just relax with all types of trees and fountains and not be in a hospital environment. In 1950, Donna Thornburg had her appendix out at Edgewater Hospital, and today she still remembers the solarium. And since it must have been March or so and kind of cold outside, this would have been very heavenly. And it was breezy and wonderful smelling. 
Not many people can say they led a business or organization for 50 years, but that's exactly what Maisel did. He proudly stood at the hospital's 50th anniversary celebration in 1979. A year later, Maisel developed an infection and passed away in January 1980. He was 85 years old. His imprint on Edgewater Hospital was indelible. He built that hospital into one of the largest at that time. That's Arisha Cardoso. I remember one thing Maisel had told me. I had worked at Edgewater for about four or five years, and I was offered a position at Northwestern. Maisel found out about it and was upset. He said, why would you want to leave this place? And when I told him how prestigious Northwestern, and he said, that's when he started to talk about his vision, and he said, there isn't anything that they do that we're not going to be able to do here. I'm building a medical center, as he called it. And he did it. That intensive care building was the first of its kind in the city. This was a hospital that was in the forefront. But that's just to give you a background of the type of individual he was. You know, always striving for excellence, always striving to be first. Bring up Edgewater Hospital, and people are quick to mention that Hillary Clinton and John Wayne Gacy were born there. The other thing people mention? The place was haunted. Stories about ghosts picked up in the years after Dr. Maisel's death. I have heard countless stories from a number of people about, yes, it being haunted. Some people swear that my grandfather was the one that would visit. Former employees told us they started to see things. Things that couldn't be explained. There was this one floor that people always said Dr. Maisel haunted it, and I did not believe it. Every once in a while, you would have an evening admission, and they'd need the patient's medical records. So they would go, someone would have to go up to medical records to, you know, at night to pull a file. When I would press the button to go to medical records, it kept stopping on this floor and opening, and I never pushed the button. It did it like four times. And then when I went up to medical records, things were moving on their own. I've heard a couple stories of the files rolling, not to quite close someone in, but just sort of sort of move a little bit. The medical record walls were moving, and I was the only one up there. I, it was a, it was late in a PM shift, and they were heavy. You, they had those big wheels that you had to turn to really get them to move and they were moving and I was actually in between two of them at one point and they were coming towards me and I got out and that was it. And people would say that was Dr. Maisel, you know, making his presence known and someone would someone said, Dr. Maisel, stop moving the files and then the wall would stop moving. I never went back there again by myself, ever. The fifth floor Maisel building, his ghost was said to have been seen. I was told that. This happened to my friend, Sydney. She was in the hospital as a patient, and she woke up in the middle of the night, and her TV was on, and she was in no shape to have put her TV on, so she didn't turn it on, and she saw Dr. Maisel there. You know, I'd be in the elevator with someone, and it would lurch, and then flickering lights, and, you know, the car stopping and then starting. They're like, oh, don't worry, it's just the ghost. I'm like, what? 
it was a little creepy. I got used to it. Yeah, I definitely heard it was haunted. Some of the dialysis staff that were there, like, late at night taking care of a patient in the ICU or something, they're like, oh, yeah, it's haunted. Like, they would see stuff in the closed units and stuff like that or hear noises that you couldn't explain. So, yeah, I've heard that it was haunted, and I wouldn't doubt it. With as many souls that have been through those doors, there's probably a few that stuck around. Oh, yeah, I work nights, and there were definitely times when you would hear, like, somebody talking, and I would, like, see things out of the corner of my eyes, like somebody was behind me and there was nobody there. If you were on the seventh floor of that place, it just made the hair on the back of my neck stand up to go there. I remember talking to some of the security guards that were hired there to watch over the building after it closed down, and... They said that they would go up and down the aisles on the floors and all the intercom systems and everything were on. And they knew that they had shut them off. And they shut them off again and then they'd come back and everything would be on again. So they were convinced that the place was haunted. <laughs> These guys, I, I, don't, I don't think they're the type to believe that quite easily, but uh, they, they were definitely convinced that there was something going on in there. In 2018... As most of the hospital was being demolished, Bradley French grabbed his camera and went to explore the buildings. Once inside, I was walking around. He took out his iPhone to take video. You know, just kind of taking videos. I, I like heard something. I didn't think much of it. I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> it wasn't until later that night when he watched the video that this sound suddenly stood out to him. I've tried to put it together. I, I really have no idea. I know there wasn't anyone in there. So what was it? I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know what other sounds sound like that. He said the next time he went to photograph the building, he took his drone to take aerial shots. But at one point, the drone suddenly crashed. And it happened in the same spot. I still have no idea what that is. We put a link to the video on the episode page at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. Do I believe that there could be spirits? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I've heard a few stories, and um, I think it's cool. I love it. I just uh, think of him just kind of keeping an eye on the place. One night back in late 2019... Matt and Pamela Perry from Chicago Paranormal Investigators joined us outside the hospital. We spent well over an hour using ghost hunting equipment like a REM pod and a geophone to pick up electromagnetic fields, vibrations, and temperatures. The investigators called upon former employees, like Dr. Maisel. Maurice, if you're here, we understand you uh, really took care of this hospital. Can you let us know if you're here? And even Dr. Cabria. Andrew, Andrew Cabria, are you here? We're just curious. We're not trying to determine guilt of anyone. We just are asking questions so we can understand what happened here. This is Stephanie and Todd. They're actually working on trying to make some sense out of what happened with the hospital and the downfall for the past 20 years. After the experts reviewed their data, they didn't find or hear any paranormal activity. But they did caution that the amount of background noise, including airplanes from overhead, affected those results. And that if we were inside the building, 
the results could be much different. We posted photos on the episode page at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. Generations of families that live near Edgewater Hospital also work there. I started there as a teenager, and my mom worked there. Brian Wittick's dad formed Tower Ambulance Company in 1945, and it became Edgewater's sole provider of transportation. He developed, uh, along with Dr. Maisel and I think it was Dr. Riera at that time, a mobile coronary unit. Edgewater was the first Chicago hospital to have a mobile CCU which was an ambulance to take care of someone having a heart attack. Inside the ambulance, a specially trained nurse like Donna Jarvis provided treatment. This was before paramedics, and we went around just for the doctors at Edgewater and picked up the cardiac patients and brought them to the ICU. The best time of my life was that. I really, really enjoyed the ambulance. The ambulance was another life-saving innovation. In its first three years, it saved over 300 lives. But for Brian, that hospital wasn't just where his family worked. Fortunately, my parents passed away in that building too. You know, their memories are in that building. The buildings later took on a different meaning for him. I mean, I had memories walking in and, you know, seeing my father, you know, not in good shape and same with my mother. You know, it's more than just brick and stone, it's heart and soul. There are a lot of negative stories. There's a lot of people that saw only the bad and left a bad taste in their mouth, but there really is so many years of good. And I'm glad to have this opportunity to tell that story. So many people in the area work there. It was definitely a family atmosphere. It was, it was a family. That's exactly what it was. I have a lot of fond memories from Edgewater. There was a lady who lived right across the street from the hospital. She worked there, her two daughters worked there, her two sons worked there. It was like a home away from home in a, in a way. It is. It was a little community and those employees would do anything for each other. We worked hard together and we all played hard together. There was a lot of good that still went on there. The phone calls would start, we're going to the fireside. And so we would all meet at the fireside and take over the place. We saw a lot of change. We saw a lot of people come and go but the spirit never left the place. Everybody cared about everybody. And we've been speaking with Dr. Mazel uh, from Edgewater Hospital, and that is located where? On 5700 North Ashland Avenue, Chicago, Illinois. My whole life here has been devoted to saving lives. Edgewater Hospital proudly served Chicago for the better part of half a century. But things started to change in the 1980s, following the death of its co-founder, Dr. Maisel. The 10 episodes of If the Walls Could Talk share the tangled story of greed, fraud, and lawlessness that led to the hospital's closing. You can hear the full story starting with episode one of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers. Prompt. Inside is used with permission from Southern Illinois University. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Wedding Invitation by Jason Farnham. City by Night by Elephant. Lukewarm Hazy by Asher Falero. Before I Go by RKBC. And Beyond the Lows by The Whole Other. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. 
Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Learn more on our website, if the walls could talk podcast.com. <laughs>